tonight as a way of beginning, I'd like to invite you to kind of in your mind or in your heart, just to take a small step back from this whole process, this whole exploration that we're doing here together. And it's like uh, just taking a look at what we're engaged in. Such a trip, isn't it? (laughs) What's up with this? And whether you're here for six weeks or three months, it's a wild ride, don't you think? I mean, wow. So here we are. On one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way, our sun is just a dot on that spiral arm. And that arm of the Milky Way galaxy that we're on, it's moving around the center of the Milky Way at a velocity of 558,000 miles per hour. (laughs) So here we are in this galaxy. Maybe this will be a little bit too much tonight is what I'm realizing. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are at IMS. Just engaged in in this wondrous thing of being aware, being present to the unfolding of our experience. And it is a, a, a striking thing to me when I just reflect, wow, this, this might be an activity that's only happening on this planet in this universe. There's something so mysterious about it and so wondrous. To take part in this activity, this simple activity of awareness, of being aware of experience. And how special it really might be in terms of the unfolding of really this entire universe. Right? And so wonderful to have all this time to explore being aware and being present to experience. And I mention this in this kind of these far out terms for a good reason is for me, one of the things that's been important for me to take in is that it's been so hard to to fully comprehend kind of the unfolding of this path and this practice. And that inability to fully comprehend it has been really important to allow that in. It's, It's so challenging to get my mind around it. And this fact, this fact that I can't get my mind around it that in itself has had a kind of power to me, for me, on this path and in this practice. 
Because it's allowed me to begin to touch a different way of being that my intellect can't understand, yet my heart can taste in some manner. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It is a trip what we're doing here. It just doesn't fit into our, our little brains. We're touching something deeper together. And for me, this, this is the mystery of it all that we're engaged in on this teeny little planet. Something so wondrous about it. As Basho said in, in this such a sweet haiku, he says, you know, it's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. It's, it's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. So tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections about how to touch this sense of mystery while on retreat and how to touch it in a way that's onward leading. I know for me when I when I started practicing meditation one of the appealing and important aspects of it was that it felt like it was a gateway into touching what I call that which is the mystery, this quality of mystery that all of us are involved in on this teeny little planet. And I think this is one of the reasons why I explored Zen so deeply because it was the, the kind of lifestyle that I got engaged in with that as well as the language that spoke to that and as, as a result spoke to me. And for me, it ended up being the perfect antidote of how I was trying to approach the difficulties in my life. You know, maybe you can relate to this, trying to figure it all out. Have you tried that one? <laughs> right. Maybe you got as far as I did. Not very far. <laughs> and I noticed it was the opposite of being with experience, the, the opposite of of noticing that we're doing here. And then, you know, in this practice, these many years of practicing and being committed to the uh, this, this Theravada tradition, I don't always find the language for mystery, but I feel it coursing through what we're doing here. So how to touch the mystery of it all in the practice that you're engaged in. And to begin with a Zen story, once upon a time, there was the monk Fayan, and Fayan became uh, a Zen master, Zen master Fayan, was the, was the founder of the Fayan uh, Chan school of, of Buddhism. And as a monk, he was traveling with some uh, fellow monks from temple to temple with a few friends, and they came uh, to an out-of-the-way hermitage and at this hermitage, there was the Zen master Dizong staying there. And so Dizong had come, and I think they stayed there for the night. And, and Dizong asked Fayan this question, so where are you going? It's an important to remember, you know, in Zen stories, when a Zen master asks, where are you going? 
he's probably trying to push and poke and see what kind of you know depth this monk has in front of him. You know, who, who is this young monk? Is there is there any understanding of this path or not? So I think this is always implied in some of these questions that seem so superficial. So yes, you know, where where, where are you going? And Fayan replied, "On pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me." And then Dizong asks again. He's prodding more deeply, further. He asks Fayan, "What do you expect from this pilgrimage of yours?" And Fayan says, "I don't know." And Dizong replies. Ah, ah, not knowing is most intimate. To not know brings this intimacy with experience. And when I read this, I I imagine to myself that Fion wasn't trying to be like this deep Zen master. He was just being honest. He was on pilgrimage wherever his feet were taking him. Yeah, he had, he had a dedication to the Dharma. And he had, he had no idea what to expect from pilgrimage. Something so powerful about that and so simple. And I think it's this kind of not knowing that Fayan embodies is the way to touch the mystery of it all. To touch the wonder of what we're doing here. And I want to be clear, this isn't the not knowing of ignorance. Rather, it's the not knowing of openness, of intimacy. This is important. We're here to know our experience. But can we bring this this openness and intimacy that Fayan embodies? And I see this in the story of how the Buddha began his spiritual path, at least one of the stories. That story that I'm sure all of you know, or most of you know, of of him leaving the palace walls. Leaving the palace, right? And he goes out and he gets exposed to, you know, sickness, old age and death and also renunciate. And when I hear this story, this kind of mythic story of stepping out of the palace, it feels like he's stepping out of the, the, that bubble of, I know what's going on. And into this realm of this mysterious existence that all of us are involved in. That's what retreat's about, isn't it? To step out of your own palace walls into the place of where you don't know. What's going on? That's really where transformation, healing, and awakening can start to unfold. And it's all around us, right? It can, it can be, we can bring that openness and intimacy, that not knowing to every moment of our experience. Just, for example, with the feeling of the breathing. Just the feeling of it. Have you noticed what a vast world that is? 
It's such a mystery when I really touch it. Not the thought of it, the feeling of it, the feeling of aliveness there. When I really touch it, I feel like it can give me the chills. To slow down and take in such mystery. Feeling that, that fluid flowing quality of that activity we call breathing. Feeling its impermanence, feeling the selfless nature of it. And maybe you at times have felt how it pulls, how it pulls us out of that rigid intellectual understanding of breathing and into something vaster. This is what I find so important to keep alive, especially on a long retreat. Because maybe, like me, you've noticed how it can just feel like the same old breath. <laughs> the same old, same old judging mind or the anger, other sadness. Not again. Can you touch the, the wonder of it all? It's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. You know, it's true. It's not like anything they compare it to, the activity of breathing. Or this moment of calm or anger or joy. Or even the mind lost in thought. It's not like anything they compare it to. Can you touch that mystery? And I want to be clear here. When I talk about touching the mystery, hopefully it's not the mystery of how to practice. Like I'm hoping that (laughs) we've clarified some of those things about the nuts and bolts of practicing. our, Our aim, I think, is to demystify that. And of course, you still might be in process of clarifying that, but That's important that that doesn't remain a mystery. How do you engage in this practice? Being clear about that. I'm talking about something different. And as I've mentioned, this is so important because I have this mind that incessantly wants to put it all in a box to make sure that I understand it in this neat, nice, rational way the unfolding of this path. And I can see that there's a a kind of grasping in that, like it's my mind's attempt to control experience. So I can put it in a box where I have it figured out. I think this is why I ended up studying philosophy. Oh, ouch. Maybe if I figure it out, oh, then I'll be at peace. Man, if I can only understand it, then I can put it in the box and it doesn't get out of control. Boy, that'd be so nice. Just grasping, wanting. And one form this takes on retreats, and maybe you've noticed this, is this question that can pop up around this, where there's this attempt to put the unfolding of this path in a box, which is the question of, 
is this supposed to be happening on my retreat? Is this, is this the way it's supposed to unfold? Is this the way it's supposed to feel toward the end of a six-week retreat? Or is this the way it feels in the middle of a three-month retreat? Right? Am I supposed to feel this pain in the body or not? All of those sexual fantasies every day? Is that supposed to be going on? <laughs> you know, they haven't talked about that. Is this normal? The 10,000 times that your mind's gotten lost in judging? What about the incessant planning? Is that supposed to be happening? I, I didn't see that in any of the texts I've read. <laughs> the weird dreams? The weird feelings in the body? The strange body movements at times? Right? And it's silly, I want to point out, it's silly to have this idea as if we know how this whole thing unfolds. And if you notice that mind come up, I want to know, I need to know how this unfolds. How can you know how it's going to unfold? You're in the middle of the journey, even if you're at the end of the journey for the six weeks. It's, it's still unfolding. And that's all it is. It's a wanting, a wanting to know. Sometimes it it feels like, for me, an attempt to feel safe in this ever-changing world. But it's just a, a being in contention with impermanence. It it really is simpler than you think. Zen master, the Zen master Wang Po, he puts it so well, he says, the foolish reject what they see and not what they think. And the wise, the wise reject what they think and not what they see. The foolish reject what they see and not what they think, yet the wise reject what they think and not what they see. The whole unfolding of this path on retreat is, it's a mystery. You know, it's, it's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. You know, it's, it's not like anything they compare it to, the unfolding of this path. Can you open to the unfolding, the mysterious unfolding of this path? To touch it, to embody it the way Fayan did. To simply be on retreat wherever your feet take you. And I think this is important to to remember just because what I've noticed about long retreat is it's like this invisible work that's happening within our systems or in our hearts. You know, and the feedback loop isn't so immediate. You know how sometimes you, you get some exercise, you go for a walk or a run, and then immediately your body feels different in a way. It doesn't work in this 
in this path in in that way a lot. It's it's far more complex. It's invisible, you could say. There's a poem by the poet Alison Luterman called Invisible Work. I just want to share with you just a couple lines because I feel like she's speaking to this. And she, she describes some of these examples of invisible work. She says, The invisible work that stitches up the world day and night, the slow, unglamorous work of healing, the way worms in the garden turn tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe, and bees ransack this world into being. It's often the things that we don't see that keep this world going. Bees, pollinators, where would we be without them? The worms working the earth. And here you are planting these seeds on retreat. And so much is happening to those seeds in the soil. And what can happen is our minds are just desperately wanting to, to dig up the seed and look at it. <laughs> can you trust the invisible work that you're doing, having confidence in that? There's something growing here. The seed, these seeds of awakening, of healing, of transformation. You probably know there's these like maps of this path. You know, the, the, the Buddha sometimes talks about them, these stages of awakening. It gives one image in one sutta of these relay chariots. You go from one chariot to another. And then in the commentaries, there's this you know, thing called the progress of insight. And even in addition to those, you probably notice your mind can make up all kinds of maps of how this is supposed to unfold. And I think it's important that the map of a place is nothing like the place itself. And we can so easily forget that if we start to create a map. I want to share with you a quote from Ken Wilber. I don't know if anybody knows Ken Wilber and his work. He's, he is an individual that is obsessed with maps of the spiritual path. He has spent a lifetime, I don't know how many books he's written. It is unbelievable. And he is the ultimate map maker in this realm. But it's interesting what he says of his work. So this is what he says of all these books of creating these maps. He says, All of my books are lies. (laughs) Unless that he says that. (laughs) They are simply maps of a territory, shadows of a reality, gray symbols dragging their bellies across the dead page. Suffocated signs full of muffled sound and faded glory, signifying absolutely nothing. (laughs) I love it. And then he continues, and he says, And it is the nothing, the mystery, 
the emptiness alone that needs to be realized. Not known, but felt. Not thought, but breathed. Not an object, but an atmosphere. And not a lesson, but a life. Because it's true, isn't it? It's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. It's not like anything they compare it to, the unfolding of this path. And then there's another question that come come around this in the same way that pulls us away from the mystery, maybe desperately trying to get away from it, which is, what am I going to get out of this retreat? I want a guarantee, I tell you, I really do want a guarantee that this is indeed worth my time and that it's all going to work out in some kind of way. And really, secretly, what I'm looking for is I want it to work out in a way that it fits my imagined fantasy of freedom or transformation or healing. Like, I want to put it in the box. Give me the guarantee. It's just an imagined fantasy. Maybe true freedom, true healing and transformation can't completely fit into how you imagine anything. And I think that's what makes it so powerful, this path, is that it's beyond our limited understanding. Remember I... uh, For 20 years ago, where I, I did my first Goenka retreat. Has anyone done Goenka retreat? Yeah. The 10 day Goenka retreat. <laughs> and I was in Igatpuri, India. Um, and uh, I actually had been traveling around and I, I met some practitioners in Sarnath where the Buddha gave his first discourse. And they're like, hey, you should go do a, you know, one of these 10 day. Goenka retreat, so I went to Igatpuri. Um, it was sweet, you know, uh, Goenka was there, I think Goenka was there, he was, we still watched the, the videos, but he was walking around. <laughs> Everybody knows the videos. <laughs> but the sweet thing is, is he would walk around in the, after an early morning sit, and he would, he had such a, a big, booming voice of chanting, so he would be walking around chanting in Pali, which is really quite inspiring. So this is a time where my understanding of practice and you know my understanding of freedom was was very limited, and I think I I was I was having a hard time in life. I was looking for a solution to my problems, and I remember getting there at the uh, the retreat center and and asking someone who had done a lot of a lot of retreats and had been practicing for quite a while, and I so I asked him, you know, have you have you solved a lot of your problems through this? 
I really wanted to know. And they said, no. (laughs) This was not a good, like, beginning of a retreat. (laughs) But then he said, but a lot of them have dissolved. That was so insightful. Great problems can cease being a problem through this practice. They dissolve. But I need to let go of that that mind that really wants to find the solution. Just to see the nature of the mind. I don't know if uh, any of you know uh, Eugene Gendlin. He's uh, um, he, he, had, he died just a few years ago, but he wrote a lot in the realm of uh, philosophy and also psychotherapy, and developed this this modality called focusing. And someone asked him once what he thought mental health was, like good mental health, and he said, "New problems." <laughs> I thought that was really insightful. <laughs> Not your old problems, getting new problems. When I imagine the Buddha, I, I imagine after his awakening, that's what his life was, is like he had new problems. He didn't have the old problem of greed, hatred, and delusion. He had new problems. Right? His cousin trying to kill him. <laughs> Monastics doing all kinds of things that he had to make one rule after another about. All kinds of troubles, but they were new problems, not old problems. So difficult, this question of what am I going to get out of this retreat? Because it's not like anything you can compare it to. The summer moon. It's not like anything they compare it to. The unfolding of retreat. I think this starts to interweave, you know, this what am I going to get out of this retreat is, is this sense that your mind might have already started planning, especially for maybe those of you who are here just for part one. But I know some of you on the three-month retreat, some of your minds have gone this way of, what are you going to tell people after the retreat? <laughs> what are you going to say? Right, because you want to make sure to convince them that it's been worthwhile and valid. <laughs> Come on, there's been that thought, right? How to put words to it. So that's the question. You know, how do you deal with, with that when needing to speak about your retreat? What should you say? Yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> I have no idea. I guess you could tell them that you came out of retreat with a bunch of new problems. Maybe that's the thing to tell them. <laughs> and a bit more seriously, I mean, what is there to truly say to people about such a journey? It is. It's a challenge to put this into words. Even just with the practice meetings, you might have 
felt that, which I want to say was an important process to begin to put into words what's going on for the practice meetings. But it's so difficult. You know, I remember after one long retreat, a long retreat I did at the Forest Refuge, I was um, a, a, a drug rehab had uh, given me and a, a partner some money to do a, um, a meditation program. And I remember coming back and it just felt so strange and awkward. I really didn't have words for that long retreat, especially for people who weren't you know, in the world of meditation. Can you touch the mystery of that to allow it in? There's something so important about that, the wonder of what you're engaged in, that it is difficult to put it into words, that you're touching experiences that are difficult to put into words. That's the mystery of all of this. It's so enlivening, I find. You know, because it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. And there's a deeper hook that I want to point out too around these imagined fantasies of freedom and transformation or healing that happen, that get entangled with the way, you know, our minds work around retreat, on retreat. And how entangled those fantasies get with becoming which probably you've seen, becoming in unskillful ways. And in particular, I want to point out a particular kind of becoming, becoming special. It can be so deep, right? Do you know that feeling of wanting to be that special person? I want to point out it's, it's tough growing up in this dominant society where that's highlighted so strongly to not have some of that, right? Your your mind is society. Jack Engler, who actually for many years he'd been on the the board of uh, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies and is, I think, a psychiatrist and has written a lot about the spiritual path. And also about the shadow side of how we envision the spiritual path that can be really damaging if we don't see some of these, these things that are implied about some of these, you could say, these imagined fantasies that the mind creates around awakening and freedom. And he actually has a whole list of them, and I want to share with you the first one, which he says, it's this quest, you know, this, this is the imagined fantasy, a quest for perfection and invulnerability. So he describes it, he says, awakening can be imagined as a heaven-sense embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal. A state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled. A state in which we will finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything above criticism and and reproach. And above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by this secret wish 
to be special, if not superior. Awakening will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that has been lacking in our lives. And because narcissistic issues are so pervasive in character development and across every level of functioning, this is usually the, the deepest kind of imagined fantasy of awakening. We're on this journey that gets to touch something much deeper than merely being, trying to be perfect or special. Something that's truly wondrous, that's truly a mystery, that doesn't fit into me. It's not like anything they compare it to the summer moon. Really, it's, it's not like anything they compare it to. Freedom. And maybe, maybe this mystery we call awakening is more ordinary than our fantasies. As the, the Zen master Tokusan, Japanese or uh, Deshan, he says, what is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Maybe this is what it's about. Or as one colleague said, maybe it's just about being mature. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what I'm looking for. Uh, this reminds me of uh, someone who I knew went over to Thailand and he was visiting uh, Wat Papong. Wat Papong was uh, one of Ajahn Chah's, I think it was his first monastery just outside the, the city of Uban. And after Ajahn Chah uh, fell ill in 1982, Ajahn Liam, Longpur Liam, took over Wapapong. And you might remember, Guy told us the story of Ajahn Liam's uh, uh, awakening, his description of this full awakening, of really something dropping, dropping away and never coming back. And so this, this person that went to visit uh, Wapapong with this aim of meeting Longpur Liam, Ajahn Liam. And he walked into the monastery grounds and there was a monk uh, sweeping the monastery grounds. So he asked the, this monk, excuse me, please excuse me, can you uh, show me to Ajahn Liam? I'd really like to pay respects to Longpur Liam. And the monk says, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and what he said about Longpur Liam was so interesting. He said, it was like the most ordinary down-to-earth person. It wasn't some like charismatic, powerful teacher, or, like beaming and shining with light. It was just an older monk sweeping the monastery grounds. He said what he was most deeply touched by was Luangpur Liam's ordinariness. 
That's a heart that's free. Maybe it is the mystery of simply being ordinary, not getting wrapped up in greed, hatred, and delusion. Because right? it's nothing like they compare it to the summer moon. It's, it's nothing like they compare it to freedom. And full awakening, you know, awakening. What is it like? I mean, this is, I think, some of the language that the Buddha uses and some of the things that you find in the discourses seem to point to this, this mysterious quality of a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, maybe a mystery of ordinariness, but still a mystery. And it is, it is tricky around awakening just because of the language the Buddha uses is does sometimes feel mysterious because it's sometimes so sparse. It's, it's so often the, the language of what's absent, like a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or it being the unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. Or what's absence, absent rather than saying really what's there. This also comes out in an interchange that happens. There's a... Uh, at one point, uh, King Pasanadi was uh, traveling through his kingdom in the kingdom of Kosala. And he and I think a, ten, a few of his attendants were staying the night in the, the town of uh, Turanavatu. It was the evening. So he asked his attendant, you know, are there any spiritual teachers we could go listen to in the evening? And the attendant reflected on it. And he said, oh, actually, yeah, there's this uh, fully awakened bhikkhuni, this fully awakened nun by the name of Kema. And it said about Kema, ah, this is a revered bhikkhuni. And word is spread about her, oh, she is wise, competent, intelligent, learned, a splendid speaker and genius. So they go and visit the, the venerable Kema. And King Pasanadi asks about, you could say about awakening. It's a, it's a question about the Tathagata, another word for the Buddha. And he asks these classic questions that get repeated over and over in some of these early Buddhist texts. Is, you know, well, does the Tathagata, does, does the Tathagata exist or not exist? Kama says, well, you know, that, that question doesn't really apply. Well, what about does the Tathagata both exist and not exist? Yeah, yeah, doesn't really apply. Well, what about neither? <laughs> yeah, no, this is going down the wrong, wrong direction. <laughs> so he's asking these questions, I think in this context of, you know, how to, how to place awakening. And then I think King Pasanadi is a little maybe frustrated or flustered and kind of, why are you giving me these answers? And so this is what she says. And remember, this is, it's not modern times. This is a different time where the, the, this answer comes about. It says, well, well then, great king, do, do you have an, a, an accountant or calculator or mathematician who can count or can, can figure out how much water is in the great ocean? Thus, ah, there are so many gallons of water. 
There are so many hundreds of gallons of water in the great ocean. There are so many hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in the great ocean. And then King Pasanadi replies, Oh, no, no, Venerable One, of course, of course I can't. And then the Venerable Kema asks, asks him, well, for what reason? Ah, because, because Venerable One, because the, the great ocean is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom. And Bhikkhuni, the Bhikkhuni Kema says, oh, so too, great king, this path of freedom, the freedom itself, awakening, is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom. What a powerful thing to be on retreat. Just to touch this mystery, this mystery of awakening, of freedom. Even if it's a molecule of touching the mystery, of those moments just when the heart isn't encumbered by greed, hatred, and delusion, can you notice those moments? Can you savor them to touch the mystery of that? They're happening every day. Can you notice them? In order to begin to open up to this mystery and wonder of this path. You know, because it's, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. You know, it's not like anything they compare it to, awakening. So for this retreat, can you, can you bring in this quality that Zen Master Fayan was talking about? This not knowing, opening the unfolding of this path without needing to know how it's unfolding. An intimacy with experience moment after moment. Just following wherever your feet take you. May it lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.